Well, here we are. We had church on the beach today, and uh, as I've done in the past, I forgot to push the start button on the uh, audio section of the video, and so I have to restart the entire sermon, but uh, I know some of you on YouTube like watching this, and so I'm going to do the sermon just for you. And um, before I get started into the sermon, I want to go ahead and um, let you know that we have bought a building. We've, I've signed a contract on it, and this one will go through, unlike the last one that didn't. And uh, in the past, I have always turned down um, offerings from people on YouTube and people that uh, I know through email or the, uh, the like. And um, if at any time you feel you want to uh, donate to this ministry in the future, I will accept donations. If you don't want to, I'm not asking. I'm just simply saying that if you do, send me an email, churchonthebeach at gmail.com, or you can contact me on Facebook, whatever. And um, I, I will be more than willing to accept offerings because I now have bills that uh, we'll need to pay. If you don't want to, this is not a request for money. I'm just simply saying that some of you have offered in the past. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to give uh, read a psalm. I'm not going to read any, uh, you know, do a New Testament reading or anything like that. We'll just go ahead and do the sermon. I'll skip uh, this day in history as well. And uh, I hope that you find something that blesses you here. Before I start, though, I want to let you know that um, today is going to be speaking about church reformation. I'm not specifically speaking about Roman Catholicism. I'm speaking about church reformation in general. However, the patterns are most realized in the Catholic Church. And so if you don't want to hear anything about Catholicism and where their doctrine is bad and why it necessitated the Protestant Reformation, then please don't watch. I, I'm not interested in having people get all bent out of shape over something that is correct and from the Bible. You've got to uh, work through these issues yourself with your own denomination. And we'll talk about that a little bit during the sermon. But what I'm going to do first is I'm going to read you the uh, text, which is Genesis 27, 41 through 46. And uh, this is entitled, The Brother's Anger, a Picture of Church Reformation. So here we go. Um, verse 41 starts with, So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Today we have just these few short verses, six verses to consider, but I believe that what's being seen in them is a picture of the true church, the people of God, and a picture of what necessitated the Protestant Reformation and many other breaking away actions in the church since then. There have always been true believers, and there have always been those who profess faith but have none. This was true in Israel, and this has been true since the founding of the church. Now, I'm going to give two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New for you to consider. The first is from Ezekiel 8. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's 18 verses long. He had a vision, and during that vision, he is taken from Babylon, where he's at, down to Jerusalem. And he's shown the pagan practices going on right in the temple. 
especially by those who are supposed to be the people of God. Some of them are the elders of Israel, for example. Here's what it says from Ezekiel chapter 8. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was the image of jealousy in the entrance. Now, the image of jealousy is probably something like an asherim. It's a tall pole that looks like a phallic symbol. And what they're doing is they're worshiping the god or goddess of fertility. In other words, in Japan, they have these big phallic symbols, and women that can't get pregnant will get up and ride on them during these uh, festivals they have every year. It's acknowledging the creation rather than the creator. It's pagan worship, and this is what's going on right down in the temple area in Jerusalem. Verse 6, furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing. So I went in and I saw and saw and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. So these people had actually taken and painted these pagan images all over the place in order to idolize or to worship them. And it goes on, where was I? Um, Verse 11, and there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. All right, the 70 men are reflective of the 70 that were chosen by Moses back at the time uh, when the law was given and they chose 70 elders to help him out. And the number 70 is, continues on, for example, in the Sanhedrin. There are 70 people that are required to uh, form the Sanhedrin. So these are the leaders of Israel. They're the elders of Israel. And it says, in their midst stood Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense went up. So they're offering incense to these pagan images which they've carved or they've painted all over the walls of the temple. Verse 12, then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say the Lord does not see us, for the Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. Now I'll stop and I'll go back to verse 13. It says, uh, the Lord doesn't see. They're in these dark rooms and they're worshiping these pagan images. It's as if the Lord can't see. But you know what? He searches the hearts and minds of all people and he sees all things. He knows exactly what's going on. And then it says, um, uh, verse 14, so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is one of the gods of, I believe it's Babylonia. And what it is is, is the days get uh, shorter and shorter. It's just like uh, they're thinking, you know, the crop season is ending and it's like a picture of death. And so these people are worshiping this pagan god, which is symbolized by the seasons and the timing of the day that God created, rather than creating the one that actually made those things. And, uh, of course, the opposite of Tammuz, or the, the cohort of Tammuz, is Ishtar. It's where we get our word Easter. It's a picture of the resurrection, or actually the resurrection of life at the springtime, not the resurrection of Jesus. But anyway, they're worshiping these false pagan gods, which only picture uh, something that God has done within creation, part of what he has made, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Uh, verse 15, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. 
So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, right at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. Rather than worshiping where the Lord of all creation is, they've got their backs to him, and it says their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Rather than worshiping the creator, they're worshiping the creation. Verse 17, and he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they have put the branch to their nose. The branch to their nose was another pagan practice re uh, represented by putting a branch to the nose. It would be like us saying, um, don't step on a crack or, or you'll break your mother's back. It's a superstitious practice and putting the branch to the nose, although nobody's 100% certain what it means, is a pagan practice. It goes in verse 18, therefore I will also act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. In the New Testament, it's no different. Now these words are written by Paul to Timothy. And I want to tell you before I read them that everybody seems to want to find a fulfillment of these verses in their own time. In other words, oh, this is pointing to now that Obama is the president of the U U.S., these are being uh, fulfilled. That's not what's going on. The end times or the latter days in the New Testament is the entire church age. These things have been going on since the very beginning of the uh, church age, and they'll go on right till the end. As a matter of fact, most of the epistles in one way or another are written to contradict heresy that had already come into the church, some of these practices that were already going on. So don't try to ascribe this or listen to people that try to ascribe this to specifically our point in time. That's not the case. But anyway, here we go. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, now, here's my question. Who within the church forbids people to marry? Well, it's Catholicism. Their priests aren't allowed to marry. That's one of the things that goes on there. Uh, he goes on, in commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Well, foods that are created by God are to be eaten. And they're to, you know, you give thanks and you eat your food. The Catholic Church has these things. You can't eat meat on certain days or fish or whatever. You know, I'm not really up on Catholic theology a great deal, but they got these foods that you can and can't eat at certain times. Adventist sects, the Seventh-day Adventists, quite a few of them say you, you can't eat pork, for example. Lots of other um, uh, groups of, uh, uh, you know, supposed believers add these type of things into their practices. And Paul is saying these things are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good. That's symbolized at the flood of Noah, after the flood. You know, God said to Noah, you can eat everything, uh, uh, you know, on the earth is food for you. You can eat anything just like you ate the, uh, the grass and the herbs and all that kind of stuff before the flood. Everything is acceptable to be eaten. And then the picture is reaffirmed in the book of Acts when the sheet comes down and Peter uh, has all the animals on there and he's told, get up, kill, and eat. And he says, no, I'm not going to eat it. They're undefiled. And he says, don't call anything impure or unclean, I, I think is the term, that God has cleansed. All food is clean. It's not the food that makes you unclean. It's the intent behind it. Anyway, he says, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. 
our lives are to be sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Our food is to be sanctified by the word of God and prayer. I was saying at church on the beach down at the uh, beach today to the crowd, you know, if you've got a girl that you want to marry, marry her as long as she meets the, uh, meets the requirements of the Bible. As long as she fits the word of God. She's not a pagan. You know, it says marry among believers and uh, don't be unequally yoked together with non-believers and all that kind of stuff. The word of God doesn't say don't do it. Sanctify it by prayer. Say, Lord, I love this girl. She loves me. We want to get married and do it. You're not supposed to be expecting signs from heaven to make your choices. You're supposed to go to the word of God, check it out to see if it's okay, and then sanctify that decision through prayer and move on, okay? But as you can see, false worshipers fill the halls of history and they reach both back before the cross and forward after the cross. If you notice some of the similarities between both accounts and the Roman church, then you've been paying attention. I'm not against Catholics, but I am against their church doctrine. There is one Lord and he has given one word for the people of God. And as we will see, this conflict between the two brothers prefigures exactly what's going on between these two ideologies. So here's our text verse for today. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 22. It says, Then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Here we have a picture of the king of Israel. The law was gone. It was in a book, hidden away in uh, the recesses of the uh, temple. They went into the temple. Somebody found it. They brought it to the king. The king heard it and he mourned uh, what would come upon Jerusalem because the people had not been obeying the book of the law. And this is very similar to what happened to Martin Luther. He's a neurotic guy. The Catholic Church at the time is telling him to do all these crazy things in order to be right with God. And one, one time somebody handed him a Bible and said, here, maybe this will help with you. He reads the Bible and he understands that there is a God and the grace of God is poured out in the pages of the Bible, not through ritual and not through rote religion, but through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's kind of a parallel of what happened. Good King Josiah, he was one of the great kings of Israel. When the law of Moses, it had been forgotten for so long was found, he read it and he just mourned over how God's word had been neglected. And then he began these great reforms in Israel to turn the hearts of the people back to God. And as I said, in church history, this has happened on several occasions, but it's most notable at the time of Martin Luther. He started the great Protestant Reformation. Man turns from God's laws, but God brings in new men to restore the truth. So may we determine in our hearts never to stray from his word. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I got three distinct thoughts for you today. The first is the elder's hatred. The last three sermons, which were all from Genesis 27, highlighted the way in which Jacob obtained the blessing from Isaac, which Isaac had intended for Esau. Today we have just six verses left in chapter 27, and which form, as I said, I believe that they form a pattern which is realized in the Protestant Reformation of the church, as well as other church reorganizations. So I'm not trying to make this an anti-Catholic issue. I just disagree with Catholicism, but there are many other sects which need to be reformed as well. Now, the details of this chapter are happening, as I've said for the past three sermons, when Jacob and Esau are about 77 years old, okay? 
That means Isaac is 136 years old, and this then would be the year 2245 Anno Mundi, or from the creation of the world. And Abraham has been dead at this point for 61 years. We go to verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill Jacob, my brother. Esau is naturally upset about what happened between him and Jacob. You know, Isaac asked him to go hunting and make a meal for him so that when he came back, he would bless him. And while he's gone, Jacob deceivingly obtained the blessing that he was promised. Now, I'll tell you something. There is room for anger in every person, particularly at sin. But there is no room for anger if it will allow the devil in. We saw this first when Cain slew Abel. The Lord at that time told him these words, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Cain didn't heed the lesson and it ended in murder. The same thing happened when two of King David's sons, uh, one of them killed the other son after, king Dave, after he became the king of Israel. This is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 13. It says there, Now Absalom had commanded his servants. Absalom is one of the sons of David. Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. Amnon is a half-brother of Absalom. He's a son of David by a different mother. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. Amnon, this half-brother of Absalom, had forcefully slept with Absalom's whole sister, Tamar. Okay? After he did that, he rejected her. He told her to get lost. And because of this, Absalom held a grudge, which again led to the murder of a brother. David, Absalom's father, might have been thinking about what happened when he wrote these words in the fourth Psalm. It says there, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now, Paul took David's words and he built on them in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what he wrote. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And I want to explain that to you because most people say, well, that means you shouldn't go to bed angry. When the day is over, you can stop being angry. That is 100% the opposite of what we are being told to do. It is an idiom. Do not let the sun go down on your anger means never stop being angry angry. And what's he talking about? About the sinfulness of the world, about sin in general. Don't stop being angry at sin, but in your anger, don't sin. Okay, here's an example. You may be immensely angry at abortion in America, but just because there's abortion in America does not give you a right to kill abortion doctors. In your anger, do not sin. Instead, go out and get the laws changed, and then we can put these people in prison when they break the laws. But we need to not sin in our anger, but we never should be let our anger at sin end. Anyway, getting back to Esau, it's possible that he actually thought about regaining the birthright and thus the blessing by killing his brother Jacob. He said, the days for my mourning my father are at hand, meaning that his dad is old and he expected him to die soon. He'd already gotten married. We saw that before. He got married at the age of 40, 30, 37 years earlier. 
And Jacob is now 77 years old and he's not married. If his brother Jacob is to die before he gets married, then the birthright and the blessing will ostensibly revert back to him. Guess what? It would also be a slap in the face of God because he had re- what he is doing is he is trying to defeat the oracle that God gave about him serving his younger brother before they were even born. This shows the profane mind of one who would attempt to cast off the rule of God. It also shows that he is probably afraid of his dad. Even though Isaac is old, he's blind, and he's stuck in bed. Here's what the Geneva Bible says about that. Hypocrites only abstain from doing evil for fear of men. Unfortunately for Esau, he would fail on all accounts. Jacob discovered his intent and he fled, and his father would live more than 40 more years to the age of 180. During this time, Jacob will have two wives, 12 sons, and at least one daughter, maybe more. God's divine plan prevailed as it always will. John Gill, however, writes of another possibility concerning this particular verse that I want to point out. Even though I don't particularly agree with it, it's interesting, and I thought I'd tell you what somebody else thought about this, this concept that we're looking at right now. One of his contemporaries, a guy named Schmidt, looks at this passage in a completely different way than all other interpreters. He says, the days of my father's mourning are coming. He sees it not that his father would be mourned for being dead, but that his father being alive would himself mourn for Jacob being slain by Esau. And so he renders the next clause, for I will slay my brother Jacob, which this in turn will make Isaac mourn and maybe die of grief. If this is correct, then he is showing ill will not only towards his brother Jacob, who got the blessing, but towards his father Isaac, who gave the blessing and then would not take it back. Either way, whether he intended to kill Jacob after his father was mourned for, or kill Jacob and thus make his father mourn, Esau intended to kill Jacob and throw off God's rule in the process. I believe that this short account that we're looking at today prefigures church reformation, and the next verse is where I believe we begin to see this. Verse 42, And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, please try to follow my logic here. In the past, Rebecca has been a picture of the church, the people of God. If you didn't see my sermons on Genesis chapter 24, you need to watch them to fully comprehend this. But I got to tell you what, nothing could be clearer. That is exactly what she is picturing in that particular chapter. There's strife between the two children, and it goes back to their time in her womb. There, God spoke these words to her. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. These words are fulfilled in the Israelites and the Edomites. But because she pictures the church, I believe they are also fulfilled in the church. The Roman Catholic Church is what you might consider the older brother, and the Reformation is the younger. But this is a type, or it's a picture of the true church and the false one, not specifically Roman Catholics, okay? We need to remember that Jacob was chosen by God, and he arrived at the same time as Esau. He is the true son of blessing, and through whom came the Messiah. The same is true with the church. 
the older came about at the same time as the younger. One is the bearer of the Messiah, the true people of God, and one gave up its birthright for works and for idolatry. It also gave up its spiritual blessing through ritual. In those Genesis 24 sermons, we spoke of Rebecca's wet nurse. She's a lifelong companion who is Deborah. Okay, we don't have her name yet, but we know her name is Deborah from later in the Bible. She is, as I clearly demonstrated, a picture of the word of God. Genesis 35 verse 8 says that she was with Jacob after returning from his 20-year stay up in Haran when he flees from Esau. Because he stayed there the entire time and she returned with him, then she must have gone with him as well. Deborah, a picture of the word of God, the Holy Bible, went to Haran with Jacob. And we know this is so, okay? In other words, from Rebekah, a picture of the church, there is a portion of people who have always held to the word of God, having been promised in advance, having been raised with the word, and having carried that same word with them, just as Jacob is taking the word or Deborah with, with him when he goes to Haran. And then there is the other offspring, which has been married to foreign and pagan wives. We saw Esau get married to two daughters of Heth, who are daughters of Canaan, and we're going to see this again in a couple of verses. Likewise, we saw in the passage from Ezekiel earlier, those who had joined themselves to foreign and pagan idols right in the temple. And this is exactly what the Catholic Church does through idol worship, the veneration of Mary and the saints, and all this other stuff. Now, you do not need to take my word for this. I have on my website links directly to the Vatican website. And there they post all kinds of stuff about this. There are certain shrines that the Pope goes to, and he prays to these, uh, these idols. And it's recorded right there on the Vatican website. And he tells people, if you go on this certain day of the year and you pray to a statue of Mary, say certain words, then you will get indulgences to get out of purgatory early. All of this is very well laid out. It's right on the Catholic website, so you don't need to believe me in this. Go out and check for yourself, and if you need the links, they're right on my website, wonderfulthenumberone.com, wonderfulone.com, and you just go through the website, and I've got all kinds of links about stuff, and some of them are going right to the Catholic website where they show these things, okay? This older, this unspiritual son who failed to receive the birthright or the blessing intended to kill the younger son. The pattern, once again, is found in the true people of Israel, where the priests and the elders of Israel went and, you know, they, they told the prophets of God, don't speak the word of God or we're going to kill you, okay? Or anybody that held to the true word of God was uh, liable to be killed because the land was so full of pagan idolatry and, and uh, false worship. And guess what? The same thing has happened in Christianity as well. How many times throughout the church have we seen this happen? The Spanish Inquisition, which everybody attributes to killing of the Jews, martyred many, many, many Christians because they held to the word of God and they would not hold to Catholic doctrine of praying to a, a stone and praying to, a, a, you know, things rather than holding to the truth of the word of God. There were martyrs like John Hus, who was burned at the stake for being a faithful man of God. Then, of course, we have the trial of Martin Luther, where he would have been burned at the stake as well. They said, recant or you're going to be executed. And he says, you know what? I stand on the word of God and I can do no other. And fortunately, he was saved by a German king who took him and put him in a, the castle. I think it's the castle of Worms, but I'm not sure. 
I, I'm not remembering off the top of my head right now. But anyway, there he spent a year, a year and a half, and he translated the New Testament into German. It became the, the, the Luther Bible. And the word of God was then available in the common language of the people. But the Catholic Church is the one that necessitated that by threatening to kill him in the first place. They, they try to make a distinction in Catholicism between two things. One is called idolatria, and one is idolatria. Idolatria and idolatria are different terminologies. One of them means to service an idol, and one means to worship an idol. And they say, well, we don't do the worshiping, we just do the servicing. I got to tell you what, that's just linguistics. The, when you are servicing an idol, you are giving it worship. You're taking your eyes off of Jesus, and you are putting them on something that is created. Or you may be putting them on a concept of Mary that you think is going to help you get you through your, uh, uh, your day or praying to the saints to get you whatever you want. None of those are authorized in the Bible. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to the saints. We pray to Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus, as the Bible does say. So there is this enmity and there is this hatred within the church which eventually prompted the Catholic Church to take a stand, a firm stand in writing, completely contrary to the precepts of the Bible. This occurred at the Council of Trent in 1546. And I will always say that uh, I believe that the Catholic Church stopped being a Christian entity at that council in 1546. If you want to read the canons, you can go right online and you can read all of them. They're published right online out of you know the Catholic doctrine, and I have them linked on my website. They are 100% contrary to the Word of God as far as justification, as far as works are concerned. And all of these absolute principal tenets of the Bible, they take an opposite stand, and they fail to meet the test of the Bible based on this council and their publishings, their canons in that council. So we need to be very careful not to hold to doctrine which is against the Word of God. All right, this is not an anti-Catholic person sermon, but this is an anti-Catholic doctrine sermon, as well as any other church which moves away from the truth of Christ. Okay, we need to make sure that we hold fast to what God wants us to do and not what man wants us to do. However, having said all of that, we're going to see in chapter 33 that Jacob and Esau eventually meet again and their hostility is dropped. But then they parted and they went their separate ways. And this is the state of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches today. There's no longer this blood feud, but there is a complete division between the two. And this pattern continues in the church, not specifically between Rome and the other churches, but between the true son of promise who holds to the word of God and the spiritually corrupt, pictured by Esau, who don't. Okay, This is not simply a Roman Catholic versus Protestant conflict but a conflict where the dividing line is spiritual versus carnal. The heritages are completely different. The Protestant Reformation merely made the largest distinction between the two in the lives of the church. But there are lots of churches that have lots of problems that need to get back to the Word of God. Okay, let's reread verse 42 again so we can get the context and then we'll move on. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. The children of the church were conceived at the same time, but only one is the true spiritual church, and the older shall serve the younger. And yes, the older intended on killing the younger because of his heritage. 
As Matthew Henry says about this verse, the happiness of saints is the envy of sinners whom heaven blesses, hell curses. Our second thought today is a time for healing. Verse 43, now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Rebecca, she sees that disaster has been pronounced upon her beloved son Jacob, and so she tells him to flee off to Laban in Haran. Interestingly, Haran means mountainous. In what seems to be a parallel thought from Isaiah chapter 40, those who carry the gospel message are told this, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The true church has held fast to the Bible and it has proclaimed it, the, the message of the gospel from the high mountain for the past 2,000 years, exactly as the Lord directed. The good tidings of the truth of God's word are being shouted with a loud voice and with strength. At the same time, J Jacob is heading off to the mountainous areas. Esau remains in Canaan, and he's mixed first with pagan idolatrous wives, and later we'll see in a, a, the verses ahead that he's going to marry two more girls who are daughters of Ishmael. Well, if you remember, Ishmael is a picture of the bondage of the law. That's explained in Galatians chapter three. So what he's doing is he's moving from the bondage of idolatry and he's moving to the bondage of legalism and works-based religion. And if that's not summing up the Catholic religion or you know Roman Catholicism in a nutshell, that's exactly what's going on. So you see what's being prefigured by these two boys here. Verse 44, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. A few days here is the term yamim achadim, and it turned out to be somewhere around 20 years that he's up there. However long it was, there is no record in the Bible that Jacob ever saw his mother again. Now, a lot of commentators like to say, well, he never saw his mother again. The Bible doesn't say that. That's an argument from silence to say that he didn't. But no matter what, it was at least 20 years and maybe never again did their eyes alight upon each other. It was a very high cost for Rebecca, but it was in fulfillment of God's word and his plan. It's giving us a picture of what's going on in human history. And the pattern here has been repeated many, many times throughout history. Those who are of the spiritual line, they bear the word of God, they leave home and family, and they carry the message of Christ around the world. Many have never returned home again. One of the... Uh, uh, reports that I did when I was in uh, Bible college was on a guy named Zinzendorf. He was the founder of a place called Herrenhut in Germany. And he had this, this uh, group of believers that held to the word of God and he wanted to get into missions. And so he picked a couple people and he says, off you go. And they went off to, I think it was San Salvador. And he gave them a couple of dollars to get to the uh, boat. And that was it. Off they went. And uh, they went right in obedience. They died. So what did he do? He sent a couple more people. And he wasn't just a, an ogre sending other people. He actually went himself. They got the mission field established. He went. And on the one-year anniversary of his time being there as a missionary, he preached to these people in their native language the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he was a, a man that had a, pa a passion for mission work. And we just had a couple people come back from uh, Japan who attend church on the beach. And they have a passion for people. Whatever it is that you do, do it with a passion for the name of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he wants us to do. These people are going off around the world to tell this message. How much more should we be doing it here in America? I got to tell you something. In past times, missionaries even packed their few belongings into a casket. And they determined that when they returned, it would be they who filled it. When they went, they went with God's blessing and they went with his word. And when they returned, it was in a state of victory over the death that had consumed them. Think about that. Verse 45, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. And I will send and bring you from there. Now, what is almost sad is what Rebecca says to Jacob. Until Esau forgets what you have done to him. Deceiving Isaac was her idea. Right from the start, she's the one that thought this up. And Jacob even questioned the prudence of what she was doing and what she recommended. But now she kind of overlooks her part in the whole thing. Anyway, as I said earlier, Jacob and Esau eventually do meet again and their hostility is dropped. But then they divided and they went their separate ways. This is how things are right now between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches or any of the churches where you don't hold to the word of God and you do. There's no longer this blood feud for the most part. People aren't out killing each other, but there is a complete division between the two. And there is also nothing to preclude a person from going from a bad church and coming to their senses and coming to a good church. And nothing would lead us to believe that Esau remained defiant of God until his death. Either way, through uh, him repenting and, you know, coming to God or whether he didn't and the rest of his life, you know, he lived apart from God, the enmity between the two of them subsided. I will say this as I say many, many times in my Bible classes. The two best groups of students that I've ever had in any of my Bible classes are what I call Reformed Jews and Reformed Catholics. And the reason why is because the Jewish people already have all of the knowledge of the Old Testament and what it prefigures and all of the, the uh, feasts of the Lord and everything and how they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, Catholicism, they have this knowledge of the Bible. They understand the Trinity. They understand the, you know, the person of Christ and his work and all of these other things. They just need to move the understanding from here down to here. And when this happens, either in these Jews or in these Catholics, they become the finest, the finest of Christians because they now have a great understanding of God's word and a passion for Jesus Christ as well. Anyway, let's go on to uh, verse 45, the continuation of verse 45. What should I why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Now, what she's saying here is that if Esau were to have killed Jacob, he could also have been killed. This is a custom which was finally codified in the law of Moses, that a close relative has the right to kill another person who took the life of a family member. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called a goel. It means one of two things, either a kinsman redeemer or an avenger of blood. In this uh, case, she's thinking of the avenger of blood. Just because only Jacob and Esau are mentioned as Isaac's sons, there's no reason to believe that Isaac didn't have other sons as well. And in fact, the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob in this same chapter uses the plural term brothers. Let me read it to you. It says here, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons, plural, bow down to you. Likewise, when talking to Esau afterwards, Isaac says this to him. 
This is from verse 37 of chapter 27. Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him, meaning Jacob, your master and all his brethren. And I have given to him as servants with, uh, given to him as servants with grain and wine. I have sustained him. What, na- what shall I do for you now, my son? So Rebecca very well, uh, may very well may have had uh, other sons, and she might be fearing that one of them could legally take Esau's life without any repercussion. Okay, so if he kills Jacob, then his life is forfeit as well. And even if there are no other sons that uh, between Isaac and Rebekah, there is still the law of God, which was given at the time of um, Noah. This is from chapter 9 of Genesis. It says, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now, whether by another one of her own sons, or by somebody else who's merely executing the law in their place. Either way, in this, she would lose two sons in one day, just as she said. These words of Rebecca, though, have a parallel found in the parables of Jesus, okay? It's discussing those who are the true spiritual line and those who aren't. So listen to his parable and notice the similarities. Here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares appeared also. So the servants of the owner came to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Now tares are what we would call darnel. It's something that grows up with the wheat and it looks exactly like wheat, but it doesn't have any uh, heads on it. He, fin- he goes on. He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go then? Uh, and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So both sons are born together. They grow together. They have a hostility between each other, but God does not take them out of the picture. Instead, he gives them a chance to, you know, maybe repent and come to the true line. But if not, there's a place reserved for people that do not hold to the word of God. It's called hell, the lake of fire. And there's a place where the people that do hold to the word of God and who have called on Jesus will go. That is heaven. All right. Our third thought today is weary of evildoers. This is verse 46. And Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these, who are the daughters of the land, What good will my life be to me? In Genesis chapter 26, we saw that Esau had married two women who were Hittites. They're local women from Canaan. Rebekah will use his marriages to get Jacob a passage out of Canaan. Rather than hurting Isaac's feelings by bringing up Esau's intentions of killing Jacob, of which Isaac may have no idea at all about, Rebekah tells him about her weariness concerning the daughters of Heth that Esau had married. And she tells Isaac that she just doesn't want Jacob to have a wife from the area. Her intent is to send him to her home where she came from up in Mesopotamia to get away from there and to allow space and time for the healing between Esau and Jacob. Okay, she's hoping that Esau's bitterness will subside. But an interesting thing occurs in the Hebrew of this verse, which has only happened three times so far in the Bible. The Hebrew word for weary 
she says, I am weary of my life, is katsti. It means to feel a loathing, abhorrence, or a sickening dread. This particular word in this verse, in the original handwritten Hebrew, has an unusually small letter kupf in it. Kupf is like our Q. In all, there are going to be very, very few times in the Bible that such rare letters are going to be used. Only 17 in the first five books of Moses, and then a few of after them, okay? God is giving us clues about himself and his plan of redemption in these unusual sized letters. Kupf, it's the 19th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it like all Hebrew letters, makes an image. Its image, the picture that it makes, is the sun at the horizon. In this context, it can mean con, uh, to condense, it can mean circle, or it can mean time. The 19th Psalm uses the name of this letter in one of its verses. Let me read this to you. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and he rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The word circuit here is the word kup, which is the same as the letter kup. What I think is being said by Rebecca is that the never-ending cycle of life, just like the sun going up and coming down continuously, the weariness of it is brought on by the daughters of Heth because of their pagan practices. The same word that she used for weary is used in the book of Leviticus under the same concept. Here's what it says. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, all these pagan practices, and therefore I abhor them. The word abhor is the same word that Rebecca uses to say weary. So once again, I believe this small letter, this obscurely used letter in this one word, in this one verse, is telling us that there is a true church and that there is a false one. According to Paul, we are not to be unevenly yoked with non-believers because they will pull us away from following the Lord with all of our heart. That's as sure as it can be from the Bible. We see it time and time and time again in the Bible. And this is what Rebecca is implying. If you remember the story of Solomon, for example, he was, uh, you know, beloved of God and he, uh, he disobeyed God in several uh, precepts from the law. One of them was not to take many wives. He took these pagan wives. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it says he loved them and he drew his heart away from the Lord. And this is what we are to learn from this particular concept. God does not want us to mix our faith with false practices, such as idol worship or tarot cards or reading, you know, rosary beads or uh, praying to saints or to Mary or following horoscopes or following any other pagan practice. And he also asks us not to intermingle with those who follow such practices in marriage. Now, I don't think that this analysis that I'm giving you is stretching it one bit. This one small letter is there, and it's given in the greater context of Jacob needing a wife, while at the same time keeping the purity of the line which leads to the Messiah and which springs from the Messiah the people of God. Esau already has two wives, both of which are pagan. It's probably good to note, though, that despite the turmoil between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau, as I've noted on several occasions in the past, the line of Esau eventually was assimilated into the group of Israelites. 
and they became extinct as an individual group. However, even until this day, the people of Israel survive in the same way. The people of the false church, the idolaters, the false worshipers, and those who reject the word of God, all of them will become extinct. But the name of Jesus and the people of his church will continue on forever. We will be walking on streets of golden and glory with him forever. We have no need to worry if this is so or not. God chose those who call on Jesus. He chose them before the foundation of the world. And those who reject him will suffer the consequences of their decisions, just as Esau did. He lost his birthright, he lost his blessing, and eventually he disappeared into history. Now, I want to take just two more minutes in case you're watching this and you've never understood the need for Jesus. A simple explanation of this. All right, so give me just a couple minutes. The Bible says that we have all sinned. If you don't believe that you've sinned, then I, I, you know, there's nothing I can do for you because you know you have. You've lied. You've, you've done things that you should not have done. You've violated the precepts of God that are written on our very hearts. That's why we, we lie when we lie. Oh, did you do this? No. You know, you just lie on top of a lie. This is called sin, and it separates us from God. But even worse is that Adam, the first man ever created, sinned against God, and we inherit his sin. It's a part of our very nature, and we can't go back before Adam and undo what he did. And so we are from birth, as King David said in the 51st Psalm, I was conceived in iniquity, all right? I was born in sin. Little babies that we see, are they inherited Adam's sin nature. We need do nothing to be eternally separated from God. It's already done. What we need to do is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And the way that we do that is by calling on him and moving from sinful Adam to Jesus Christ through faith, okay? If you've never taken the time to do that, that's all he asks you to do. And if you don't, this is your choice. You can try to please God through works. You can try to please God through legalism, but you will not be able to do it because the sin is already there. Jesus was born without sin because he was born of a woman in the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible shows, it demonstrates very clearly that he never sinned in his life, okay? And at the end of his life, he gave his life up as a sacrifice of atonement. So the wrath that was poured out on God, on Jesus at the cross by God, is what we deserve. And so we have that choice, either put our faith in Jesus or try to do it on our own. I hope that you will make the right choice in this. Anyway, I want to give you a closing verse today. This is from Ezekiel chapter 9, and it is one of the most horrible or horrifying verses in the entire Bible. I got to tell you what, in 2004, I wrote a book, okay? I had it published, and it's based on these verses right here. And it shows us the extreme nature of God's abhorrence of our sin, especially of the pagan practices that we follow. You remember what I read you from Ezekiel chapter 18 and what the people were doing? This is the result of not living for God and not living for Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read you a whole chapter. I'm just going to read you a couple verses, but here's what it says. And he called to the man clothed with the linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go throughout the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said, in my hearing, there's six other people. I think there's six total, maybe five people that he's speaking to. I can't remember. It's either five or six. Anyway, he says to the other ones, not the guy with the, the writing horn, but people that are carrying a weapon in their hand. In Hebrew, it's called mapats. It's a shattering weapon. 
If you hit somebody with it, it's just going to completely destroy him. It says, go after him, the one with this, this mark, who's putting the mark on the foreheads of the people that mourn. And he says, um, uh, where was I? Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Judgment of God begins. It doesn't end at the house of the Lord. God is hugely displeased with the false teachers and the false preachers that are out there in the world deceiving people, working for money, working for uh, pagan practices, and just dismissing the literal truth of the word of God. He abhors that. And the judgment is going to begin there, and then it's going to radiate out to all of the people who follow them in their sinful practices. And I got to tell you something. The word that is used here, it says, uh, go put um, a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. The word mark is the Hebrew letter tav. Actually, it's the word tav. It's a, a tav and a vav. But anyway, this tav, this mark that is put on their forehead is a cross. The ancient letter tav, that's what it was. It was a cross. And so even in the Old Testament, the cross is what saved the people. And it was a sign and a symbol that God had protected his people. All throughout the Bible, you'll see signs of the cross. And then Jesus comes and he gives his life on a cross. That's why churches have crosses on their walls is because it is the only sign that brings salvation. It's a symbol of what he did. The cross itself doesn't save but it's a symbol of what Jesus Christ did. May I never boast in anything, but the cross of Jesus Christ is what Paul wrote and what is in my heart and what should be in all of our hearts. All right, next week we're going to talk about Genesis 28, verses 1 through 9. It's when uh, Jacob gets ready to leave, head up to uh, Mesopotamia to find a, uh, a wife and to get the uh, enmity between him and his brother settled. He gets a blessing from his father, and it's called, May God Almighty Bless You. And of course, as I do every single week, I have one more thing. It's very short this week. We only had six verses, and so I've got a poem based on those six verses. Here we go. It's called Holding Fast to God's Word. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him in his tent. And Esau said in his heart, as he was guessing, the time of his father's death and his life would be spent. The days of mourning for my father are at hand, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Won't it be grand? And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called for Jacob, her son. And she said to him, surely your brother Esau is quite bold. He comforts himself by killing you, my precious one. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a little while. There really is no choice until your brother's fury turns away and is gone. When he forgets what you to him have done, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you also, my son? Both of you in one day, this I couldn't bear. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of this land, those of Heth. It would be terrible if from them Jacob got a wife. What good would my life be to me? It seems worse than death. In these verses, we have lessons to learn concerning our affiliation with right living. It is our duty to all wicked things spurn and only to the Lord should our allegiance we be giving. When our church departs from his word, it is our duty to remove ourselves hence and stand fast by following the Lord 
we need to always use the best common sense. He is our Lord, and to him alone is our allegiance due, and so let us fix our eyes upon him and our hearts be true. Great is the Lord, and surely he is worthy of praise, and so shall we follow him and glorify him all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing me to do this sermon, even a second time if necessary, in order to get the word of the greatness of Jesus Christ out and to show us how you abhor our idolatry and our pagan practices, and you just want us to hold fast to your word and to be true to you, to never stray from your precepts. And I would ask that any person who is watching this today would just be blessed and that they would remember the lesson and turn their heart completely holy and without any uh, turning away just to the cross and to Jesus, that they may follow him all the days of their life and someday walk on streets of gold and uh, surrounded by the saints of the years. Lord God, please help each person that might be watching that has affliction or that has trial and uh, help them to uh, get through that and to just be blessed in the week ahead. And Lord, we just want to give you praise and glory and honor for who you are and what you've done for us. We just love you, Lord. You are great and you are glorious. All this we proclaim with loud voices and with our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen.